Love that. How long did it take you to get good like that? Or is it, does it feel more intuitive? You, you should ask my wife. <laughs> she likes you too much. Because huh? when I first learned how to play with it, I would like every time somebody was having a bad day, I'd be like, hey, you want me to play your flute? And I'd walk right up to my kid and I'd be like, they'd be screaming at me, dad, get out of my face. And I'd be like, you know. Um, I think. Uh, I would say over the last five years, I got a lot more focused and kind of yeah. spiritual meditation, whatever. And what I realized is, you know, this is a really easy way to do a whole bunch of good things for yourself. Breathe, yeah. focus, bring calm. And so um, we added two 15-minute uh, like breath, breath work sessions on our calendar. They were optional if you can make them, but they for were for the team. For the team. Oh, dude. And so we were doing it on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And sometimes I would take them through box breathing or whatever. Sometimes I play the flute, then go into this stuff. Um, so yeah, it, it was more to just kind of help people like remember like what's important. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think, really hard in today's day and age. Hey team, welcome to the Professionally Offensive Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Cabrera. This is the spot where we provide raw, unfiltered insights from some amazing guests. Stand by, you're about to be offended in all the right ways. All right, team, welcome back to the podcast. I am here today at Scout Ventures HQ here in Austin, Texas with the one and only Brad Harrison. How are you, my man? I am great, man. I'm I, uh, pretty excited we get to use this podcast room and you had all the appropriate equipment, so it made it perfect. We see people coming in and out using the podcast room, but uh, I'm really excited. I know when we talked, I was like, dude, we should film it at our podcast room, so... This is the first one. I'm glad to be here. Oh, man. No, I'm, and when I walked in, I was like, this is clearly a pot room, man. So I'm glad that we were able to break it in. What a cool spot, by the way. If anybody was here right now and you could see through the audio what I was looking at, just world-class, state-of-the-art gym. And then on top of that, this, you know, well-known, hard-hitting VC, which is so interesting um, to have that kind of, I think you're mentioning on the way in is like, well, I don't know how well that works with investors doing the tour place, but I think it is the personality of the company has yeah, to no, be, right? No, no, no. I mean, listen, there's something about being out there and being vulnerable by, right, working out in front of your entire team, right? They all come <laughs> in and I'm getting my ass kicked by Eric the trainer, you know? Um, but I think, you know, Everybody on the team is working out here. It's like part of the culture. And I think for us, you know, that commitment to self is part of what makes us great. Now, how does that happen when some do not disturb? <laughs> I know why. It's a two-star general. Let me just tell my call No worries. Hey, I'm interrupted us. <laughs> and that's actually, uh, that was my classmate, Brett Sylvia, who I think I knew... Uh, our sophomore year at West Point when we were roommates, he'd probably be a general, and now he's taking command of the 101st. Holy smoke. Uh, so wait, that year. was actually the Pentagon hitting us up? <laughs> well, that was Brett's <laughs> cell phone. <laughs> he was probably not in the Pentagon because you can't use phones in the Pentagon. Most people don't realize that. You cannot go into an office in the Pentagon 
without securing your electric devices. Doesn't matter, classified, unclassified, no electric devices allowed in the offices. It's locked up. Yeah. It's locked up. Well, actually, so before so we I go, apologize. Yeah. No, I don't. Because we just we just went through. I just went through the whole muting and everything. We put it over there. <laughs> it's even. It's not even here. This it is why you had to run it. Here. Now it's in somebody else's office. But the. I well, I guess let's set the stage. I would got to give just Brad a quick bio so y'all know. But being the, the Pentagon statement probably sets the stage a little bit. But Brad actually is a uh, fellow West Pointer. Guy has done some, you know, done his tour duty. Incredible dude. Uh, and then after getting out of the service, um, decided to go take uh, an absolute mouthful of education there at MIT and do his grad school there. But while along the way, I think you've worked with some pretty epic companies like AOL and some other yep, things along yep, the way. Yep. So just hard-hitting companies just along that path, which eventually got you to where you're at with Scout Ventures. And I know I just kind of glazed over a bunch of things, but that's just the summarized version. Yeah. Just want to set the stage. No, no, and, and I think when I think about that same path, I think about all the key mentors along the way, right? So, you know, Dick Parsons, who was my first Little League baseball coach, who was my dad's best friend, who, you know, ran AOL Time Warner and Citigroup. You know, Dick took me up to West Point when I was, I don't know, first grade, second grade. That's where I oh, first got Oh, you exposed got that early to it. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah, because we lived in New York, right? So that was up the Hudson. So, you know, and uh, so, you know, I think about mentors like Dick who helped set me on a path. Ironically, I always thought I would go to Princeton and his son always thought he would go to the military academy and his son went to Princeton and I went to the military academy. We did like a swap at the very end. Um, and then I think about, you know, uh, his son, Greg Parsons, first roommate was a guy named Steve Papa. And when I got to Boston in 99, Papa was coming out of Harvard and starting a company called Indeca Technologies. And that was the first company I literally carried computers out of the apartment into the first office and we had to do it at like midnight because we weren't allowed to move out of either facility or it and you know steve who's gone on to be a very very successful serial entrepreneur we actually just sold a company together about a month ago to fidelity called shoebox you know sitting and observing steve and being in that environment and realizing like i was a business development guy when the coder puts the headphone on, they don't want to talk to the business development guy. That's what that means. <laughs> I learned that real quick. That's and I so did funny. That. It's so vivid in my brain. But, yeah. but, you know, I mean, I learned that, you know, I understood about, you know, what sprints were in terms of putting out software. I, I knew what it was like when the software didn't compile and it didn't work and it broke at two o'clock in the morning and the email chain went around. Hey, we failed again. And those guys wound up selling that company in DECA to Oracle for over a billion dollars. And that, you know, so I think about Steve as a key experience. And then I think about Howard Anderson and Todd Dagris, who I was teaching assistant for. They were two great venture capitalists. Todd did the Akamai deal while I was his TA with a professor and two students from MIT. So I got to see all of that. So a lot of these experiences is finding great people that are willing to have you along and just kind of give you advice. You know, before I ever launched Scout, 
I was running a consulting firm called Brad Harrison Ventures, very creative, like most of us. I'm sure you have one in there with your name on it, <laughs> there your kids' initials or something. I now have... Favorite dog. Uh, yeah, yeah. I now have Elvis VC, Scout VC, you know, so both my kids have different entities that I've, like, uh, turned in LLCs. But, you know, it was Todd in December of 2009 that said, hey, you don't need to raise a fund to start building a track record. Like, you're a super resourceful guy. You always have been. Go figure out how to get money and start investing. And that was great advice because that allowed me to get started. And a lot of the challenge is just making the decision that you're going to go on the journey. Yeah, man. Right? Oh, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, there's all these competing things. <laughs> you know, I went to my, my wife. Luckily, we had no kids, and I was like, oh, by the way, I'm quitting my good corporate job, and I'm going to go launch this firm, and we don't really have any money put away, but I'll figure it all and out. I've never really done this before, yeah, but yeah, we're going to be good. It'll all be good. <laughs> um, and so I, I could uh, never thank my wife, Angie, enough for like just kind of believing in me and supporting. There were a couple of times my dad and wife said, uh, maybe you should go get a job, dumbass. <laughs> um, I don't think they're saying that anymore, but, you know, these experiences is what has informed where Scout is today. Yeah. How we think about things, the processes, right? Like what I'm trying to do is take my experience and share that with the team so that everybody on our team becomes a better investor, right? So, you know, there's always this, you know, how do we get better? In the Army, it's super simple. We practice, we run, we evaluate, we do an after action review, we get our lessons learned and we do it all do it over again. again. And, we and we do that. We have at Scout, we have a standard operating procedure, which if you're in the military, the SOP, there's an SOP for everything. How to clean your gun, how to, how to do a, a certain type of ambush. How to eat dinner. How to eat, everything's got an <laughs> SOP. But, you know, we're on version 40 at Scout. Think about that, right? We we really, st I started doing what was the precursor to Scout in uh, December of 09. We turned it into a fund in June of 2011. Yeah. And by 2013, 14, we had rebranded Scout. And, you know, we really like Scout because it's my daughter's name. I was an infantryman, the scout platoon are kind of the ones out seeking there, out new things, seeking yeah. out the new things, looking at the information. They're the ones that go farther, faster, fight harder. Um, we scout for talent and technologies, so it's what we do. And um, it was a really short URL. It, it took me about 11 years to buy scout.vc from this German guy, <laughs> but he finally, finally agreed to sell it to me. Um, and then it's like building the team. See, there was no roadmap and I had no budget. So it was like, okay, how am I going to build the team? So not only do you have to go find super unique people that are willing to go on that journey with you, but they also have to believe in you enough to take the cut in salary to do whatever. And so how are you, how do you get them there? Right. Yeah. So you know, I, I built the firm with a guy named Brendan Siren. Um, Brendan is still a dear friend. I love him to death. And, 
you know, Brendan was the one that was like, okay, like, this is what we want to do. How do we organize it? And then we would iterate. And we yeah. had another guy named Corey Miller, who was our junior guy, who had just come out of school. And Corey was super bright. And so we would start to iterate over and over again. And when we don't know something, we'd be like, okay, let's go do research. Let's write a report. Let's do whatever. And so now, you know, we're at this point where since 99, I started as a generalist. I had no money. I raised money. You know, now we have a full team. We're on our fourth fund. We have institutional support from the state of New Mexico, JP Morgan, USAA, which we're super excited about the support of all those groups. And we've invested in some amazing veterans that have built billion dollar companies like Dan Brillman and Taylor Justice at Unite Us. That mm -hmm. company was incubated out of my office. Dan was my very first venture fellow. Really? Yeah. Dan that thing have, crushed I, it, didn't it? I mean, they're still crushing it. Yeah, holy and, smokes. And you know, they are a story of perseverance and resilience. You know, we started trying to solve a problem for veterans. How do we help transitioning veterans? And we wound up building this thing and we couldn't get the VA to buy it. And we got these veteran charities to subsidize it. And it was so effective that then Health and Human Services said, well, wait a second, like, can we use this for our homeless population and our whatever? And now I think they're in 44 states and they have nine of the 10 largest health systems as customers. Yeah, unreal. Um, and that started, you know, with a diagram on a dry erase board in a Regis office, you know, before WeWork existed, right? I'm dating myself, but no, I mean, I'd I mean, when you when you look back on that journey, Brad, is there anything, especially think about like I don't know, the first five folks that came to work with you, what what were you thinking about in that time about like who you needed on the team? So, I knew that I was your atypical West Pointer in terms of how I dress and how I act and how I think, right? In some categories. In some categories, I'm just like the rest of us, right? Well, just a quick aside, like Brad, that flute y'all probably heard just at the beginning of the episode is not a stereotypical West Point thing to do, no, which I exactly, love, exactly, exactly. Well, that's why we brought it. We were talking and I knew we'd have fun today. That's so good. But I think, um, you know, for me, I wanted to be as institutional and well-organized as I could possibly be with, you know, integrity, transparency at the top of our values. Yeah. And then I knew that that would lead to profitability, right? And every year we would invest and every year we would evaluate kind of some critical areas. And it started old school with an Excel spreadsheet that we sent to every single entrepreneur every quarter and said, you know, name a company, address, number of full-time employees, cash in the bank, burn, you know, all of these things. And in there, we had some very specific questions around next fundraise, key hires, the things that are keeping you up at night. And the idea was to, to have data that we could look across. So we took these spreadsheets and we put them in one worksheet and all of a sudden we had median data. Mm -hmm. We knew right away we just knew where we were in our own portfolio and then we started thinking about this idea of green yellow red like how do you rank everybody 
and what were the variables that you care about, right? And as a VC, I think the biggest one is making sure companies don't run out of money. Yeah. And at Scout, you know, we talk about the four R's, raising capital, revenue generation, recruiting, and retention. And for us, that's what we want to do for our portfolio companies. If we can help in those four areas, that's where we can always consistently add value. We know we're going to create value for the company and then the CEO is happy. Um, and that CEO being happy, you know, your CEOs are your, they are your referrals. Yeah. Right. They are your reference points. They are your, you know, your success and failures. Um, and so, when we started getting even more organized, you know, Brendan and I and Corey, right before we kind of expanded the team, you know, at that juncture, it was, okay, let's look at where the deals come from and which deals perform the best and where do those come from? Yeah. Then let's look at the composition of the founding team. Was there one founder, two founders, or three founders? Was there a tech founder or not a tech founder? And we started looking at the data and we kind of realized, well, I mean, it might seem obvious, but like, you know, the teams with two founders, for the most part, it outperformed because there was a little bit of balance, right? It wasn't one person either making all the great decisions or a bunch yeah. of great decisions and a couple of bad <laughs> ones, right? Um, and so I think, you know, there is this, um, there is definitely this idea of can you look at what you've done and develop a thesis. So for us, what we realized over the first five years of investing was that when we invest in communities of entrepreneurs that look like us, veterans of the military, veterans of the intelligence community, uh, companies that come out of leading research institutions and national labs, so, you know, most people don't realize, but MIT has money from DOE, DOT, Army, Air Force, right? Yep. And all these different groups. Carnegie Mellon has money for software. UT has money for robotics, you know? And so there's this really interesting network where the people in that network are not your young West Coast entrepreneur that's just trying to raise at the highest valuation possible. They're really looking for a group of investors that is gonna help them. And so for us, we define that group as hard to access founders and we think we have a competitive advantage. The second piece is like looking at the sectors where we invest. So when I started, I was a generalist. If I met an entrepreneur and I liked them and I thought they had a it good idea. It could be idea, anything. Yeah, I mean, direct to consumer, CPG, you know, and some of this I did in the fund, some of this I did it on my own. Yeah. I've never never made money on a CPG deal, even when it's gone in a Walmart and a Whole Foods. Um, you know, I have one consumer company that is crushing it called Bespoke Post, which was in fund one. We were their first outside money. Rishi and Steve are unbelievable entrepreneurs and just execute flawlessly against a really disciplined plan. And they have been doing that since they had zero in revenue. And now, wow. you know. Did they, you see that in them right off the bat that they were just kind of, these guys were hardcore operators? The thing that you see at the beginning 
you have a hypothesis based on their background, mm -hmm. right? One of them came from Amazon and one of them had come from Chegg and their company was very heavily dependent on optimization of logistics and inventory. And so I knew that they had both come from backgrounds where they would have had a unique insight into that, right? So that was like a hypothesis. What clicked for me was the dynamic between the two of them. You know, there's a very clear difference between two founders and every time you ask a question, one founder talks between a team like Rishi and Steve, where if you ask a question, a hard question, they pause, they look at each other. You know, there's some sort of acknowledgement and, and energy between them that goes into who's gonna answer and why. And that's really, really hard to find. Mm. There's been a bunch of other teams where there's two founders and one founder just dominates the other founder, right? He dominates the amount of equity, dominates, you know, control and, there's this perception that they're co-founders, but it's really not. Um, so I think having like true founding teams um, really just makes better companies. When you think about, as I'm even hearing you talk about this, I see the, the people side of it being such a big part of this. Is this what, in addition to the exposure you got from you know being a young operator after the military, is it what got you into the game and kept you in? Is the people side of it like what? Because I would tell you from oh, let me add some context from the outside looking in. I hear a lot of folks that don't know the industry intimately, just as you think about these suits down Wall Street and all these things being just so sterile and transactional. Yeah. It doesn't sound like the way I'm talking to you about no, it. That's the reason. I mean, you know, there's a there's a one of my very first venture deals when I was still at MIT was into a, a gentleman named Hemant Tanasia, who now is the managing partner of General Catalyst. Super, he's gone on, he's been yeah. super, super successful. Um, I'm sure Hemant would uh, attribute it all to his very brief time where I was his investor. <laughs> yeah, it's because of Brad. his company called Isovia. <laughs> but, you know, with those guys, you know, that was so long ago that we had to buy servers and we would take the covers off of servers and put fans on them to cool them down, right? Like, I think there's something about being a builder or a creator that I identify with, mm -hmm. right? It's that part. It's like, you know, if you had asked me when I was a kid, did I think I was artistic? No, I didn't think I was that artistic. Now I think I'm pretty artistic. And I think part of the art for me is getting better about mentoring entrepreneurs, getting better about the network that we surround them with, knowing what they need before they need it. You know, I, uh, I know how stressful it is to be an entrepreneur waiting for a wire. So we try never to be that person, right? We never want to be the one that they're waiting on the wire. Um, and so I think there's a bunch of things that you can do just based on your own experiences that make you better. For me, now that I look back on it, I grew up in an upper middle class home in Westchester and my dad was a technophile. So, you know, first VHS, first Apple IIc, you know, so I grew up playing with this stuff at the edge of what was the newest, coolest, the greatest. And, I think a lot of that is also imagination, right? You know, I grew up watching Star Wars, Star Trek, but I also grew up watching John Rambo, 
first blood, <laughs> you know, which is classic, you know, which is why I went to ranger school. Yeah. Right? I wanted to be like Johnny Rambo. I love it, man. Come in, Covey leader. <laughs> Come on, Johnny. I know you're out there. Um, but no, I mean, I think, you know, part of it is that I was afforded the creative opportunity to almost self-program myself. Yeah. These are the skills that I wanted to learn. And then you overlay that with what your parents put in you, right? So I grew up in a tennis household. I played tennis all the time. And, you know, and by the time I got in the army, I was driving Harleys and, you know, doing all sorts of stuff that if you look at them now, I know where those influences were. Yeah. Right? That drove me to wanting to have those experiences. And, you know... You only get one go around. So I think for us, it's really trying to understand all of the things we're talking about. No, I dig it. Okay. I'll stop mumbling. No, no, no. You're not mumbling. This is, yeah. this is great. So I'm I just uh, before we kind of I know we got a lot. I want to cover a lot of things. I mean, the, yeah. the flute is here for a reason. If y'all are not, you obviously can't see it right now. But if you see that we're going to be talking about just kind of self-development, self-care and those things. But before we kind of go into that. Just one more thread on the VC side of things. If you're talking to your young self again and you're starting all over with what you know now, which I know the gift of hindsight is equally great and a fake thing because you can't go back in time, but how would you do it different or would you do it different? Um, you know, maybe I should have listened to my classmate from MIT Sloan when he told me to go to Google in 2003. Um, and I don't mean that from a just wealth creation. I mean that from, you know, what would that network be like to be one of the first hundred or 200 or 300 Google employees yeah. and to have had the experience and the culture of building an organization like that. You know, I had experiences, you know, I got to AOL when AOL had just bought Time Warner, right? But you know, it was they were still sending discs to people, right? Like the, <laughs> the world was moving on. So I think um, a lot of it comes down to not focusing on the money side. I think you come out of the military and you see all these people that are your peers that have been working for a lot longer and they have nicer cars, nicer houses, bigger things, bigger jobs. Because while I was playing Airborne Ranger for five years and two years at grad school, seven years, which is a lot when you're 28, 29, um, you know, you just think you're like, oh, well, I want that job or I need that money. or, And I would tell you the most success we started having is when we stopped focusing on the money and we started focusing on what we were building and who we were working with. And then the money started to come. Um, and it was this crazy thing, you know, again, we talk about, you know, these people, but, you know, uh, a friend entrepreneur that was kind of, when we moved out of our Regis office, we moved into this basement office in Tribeca, New York. And it was super cool because the first floor had this guy, Bob Giraldi, who was a famous director directed Michael Jackson's Pepsi commercial, infamous maybe. And there was a company called the Ed Pressman Movies, which did Conan, you know, American Psycho. So to walk in my office, you had to walk through these two production companies with all this Conan stuff and all this crazy stuff on the walls. And you walk down the stairwell and we had all exposed brick, but we were in a basement. 
And so what I did was we started renting one desk and by the end we wound up having both floors and we had a whole area where we had three, you know, young kids from Columbia that were running a maker bot and, you know, we just brought people together. My lawyer, Bobby Weinberger, you know, who does a lot of my work, Bobby played basketball with a guy who was doing content marketing and they went to high school together and he showed up and we fired a lawyer one day and I was like, hey, you do corporate law, right? Yeah. <laughs> And I talk to Bobby five times a day now, right? So we started by community and then we started, and then the community self-selected, right? The people that were full of shit, we got rid of, or the people that couldn't deliver, you know, listen, I've had a lot of turnover. My turnover is a function of not finding the right people. Now I have the right people. It took a really long time. Um, and then you also have to understand that some turnover has nothing to do with you, right? Like Brendan is a Boston guy. He wanted to go to Boston. His wife's from Boston. His family's in Boston. His in-laws are in Boston. His parents are there, you know, so he had got a great opportunity. Um, and so I think you have to understand the evolution of business is that you're going to change. You know, you asked about my younger self. I mean... I used to think my younger self was really smart and I'm not so sure how smart that guy was. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think part of it is it takes a certain level of maturity. You know, when I had kids, I immediately started thinking about investing differently. And that's when we added this idea of making the world a better, safer place. And we, you know, and we just said, okay, we're not doing weapons. We're not doing, you know, we're not doing anything that kills people. We will do AI, we will do quantum technologies, we'll do all sorts of super cool stuff. And I wanna be not the smartest person on those calls with my teams. Mm. I wanna be like, man, that dude is super smart. Still needs me, right? We, we add value, but I think that's the other thing. When you get out of this cycle of trying to be someone else or compete or be who you're, late grandfather your dad or your brother or whoever it is once you release all of that and you just focus on you and your energy and your universe i think you have much better success um and part of that is just focus you know sometimes you know we we help launch another organization called the academy investor network and there's two amazing people running it uh, Sherman Williams and Emily McMahon, who I, I recruited and I put in there. You know, part of the reason we launched that is, number one, there was no affinity network across the five service academies. And what most people don't realize is that we have a disproportionate amount of leadership in government, leadership in Fortune 1000 companies, and leadership in kind of all these other sectors. So it seemed like we could leverage our network better. That was number one. But number two was that I always wanted to be able to have time to provide advice or mentorship with entrepreneurs, specifically veteran entrepreneurs. And we just couldn't do that anymore, yeah. right? Like we were just so overwhelmed. And so rather than just ignore this population that I care about, you know, I took some money and we put it there to get that thing off of the ground and now they're crushing it. And now it's another resource for our community that didn't exist before. Um, and so for me, it's always been about, I'm old school, 
most of the time I prefer to talk on the phone. Yeah. I do. You know, I still call people and say, thank you. Yeah. I like to text when I meet somebody, I like to take a picture and text each other so that I have a picture of this weird number that's going to text me in six months. Right? Oh yeah. That guy. (laughs) I remember meeting him in Houston. Um, but I think this is all part of like, what do you want to do? And I want to go back to something we didn't talk about, but I think is really interesting. And for the audience, I think it's really important, which is you got to figure out your own like competitive advantage, you know, Telling me that I have to wear khaki pants and a blue button down shirt and a blue blazer. Like people did that to me for a really long time. And originally I hired Brendan to be that guy. And then I hired somebody else to be that guy because I just, I'm not that guy. I mean, I'll look good in it if you make me wear it because (laughs) I'll wear something nice, but I'm not that guy. Right. And you have to figure out like, okay, if you're not that guy and you're, a little more eccentric or you're a little more quirky, what does that mean and how do you bring better people together? And so for me, it's really about trying to do the right thing and you're not gonna make everybody happy all the time, right? I catch people doing bad things. I'm not the good guy in that scenario, right? Sometimes I'm the bad guy. You know, I I like to say, I know this for the audio podcast, you won't be able to see this, but for anybody at home, I like to say guiding entrepreneurs you're like gently tapping them in the general direction. You know, left, right, in in the army, we call that your lanes or fields of fire. That's right. Right? So you're just trying to keep people gently pointed in the right direction. And every once in a while, somebody's gonna veer, and you're gonna have to much more forcefully push them back in. And that's my job. That's part of my job as a mentor, as a board member. What we really have learned over all these years is that number one, you got to really be focused. And that means for us, we need to focus our capital and our time into the companies that we're going to cultivate. So we want to take a minimum of 10%. We want a board seat and a board observer seat. Uh, Entrepreneurs might not like this, but we're going to start asking a lot more about who do you bank with? Who's your accountant? Let me know your insurance broker, because I think we need to do a better job to make sure that like fraud doesn't happen, money doesn't disappear, it's not mismanaged. You know, some of these entrepreneurs, they don't they don't mismanage the company because they mean to. They just yeah. never done it before. Just got it, yeah. Or they, you know, or whatever. They have a their own issue with their own family or their mother gets sick and they get busy, right? Life happens and we have to remember we're all human. Right. This is just one your company is just one piece of what you're building. And so I think we try to make sure, you know, family first, you know, all of that is in the culture. But the other thing at the end of the day is like, well, how are we different or how do we pick better companies? And a lot of what we talk about is like asymmetric information advantage. Right. So if you want to have outsized returns, how do you drive outsized returns? You need something. Right. So for us, when we think about these hard to access founders, if I hand another VC that doesn't have a military background or doesn't come from the academy and just, you know, might not understand our backgrounds and you hand the background of an aviator, 
who flew Blackhawks and mm -hmm. whatever, they're going to grab that resume and go, oh, that's really cool. You flew helicopters for 15 fun? years? Like, oh, that must be awesome. I get that same resume and I see that the person was in a flight class of somebody that I can call. I see that they were at Task Force 160, 160 or Flight Concepts. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, this man or woman is a stud, right? They are like, and that's the stuff that we can see, that we can diligence, that just gives us a slight edge on trying to pick the people that we're working with, right? When we start to look at companies to invest in, we spend a lot of time accessing what's called non-dilutive funding. So everybody can say whatever they want about innovation in Silicon Valley. The largest investor in innovation in the history of mankind is the US government. And it got formalized when we developed the nuclear bomb in the 40s. And it has continued to lead to National Science Foundation, NIH, all of this non-dilutive government funding that comes from Department of Energy and Department of Transportation. And without that money, a lot of innovation wouldn't happen. You wouldn't have the internet, came through DARPA. You wouldn't have the mobile phone. You wouldn't have chemotherapy. You wouldn't have all of these things. So what we do is we leverage our relationships to try to have ongoing dialogues to understand the objectives that our government is trying to accomplish as it relates to innovation. And so the only thing going on right now that has bipartisan support is stuff around innovation, the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Adjustment Act, the Competes Act, and what will be the largest historic defense budget in the history of the United States. And that means that if I can write a million and a half dollar check and over 24, 36 months, I can get 3 million from NASA or the Department of Defense through a program there that allows us to do much more and be more capital efficient with our money, right? That's the public private partnership. I'm taking private money, I'm leveraging my relationships and I'm using that not in an unfair way, just in a way to say, hey, like, we're building these cool companies, you should give the money to these companies. And I think what's happened over time is we've built this brand with Scout where whether you like Brad or don't like Brad, Scout companies should have a certain standard of how they're run and the diligence and, you know, and we hope that the people giving those grants, when they see a letter of endorsement on Scout Letterhead, they go, okay, you know what, we know Brad, Steven, Cody, and the team over there, we know that's gonna be a real company, Yeah. let's give them the money. And so, you know, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then this other thing around asymmetric advantage is we're a small shop, but when we wanna write an investment thesis, right, we actually spend 16 to 24 weeks we bring together our venture fellows. We normally have one SkillBridge fellow. And for anybody that doesn't know, SkillBridge is an amazing program where a transitioning person from any branch of the military can get their command to sign off and let them come work with us. So Steven came to us through SkillBridge. And there's a guy named Mike Slaw who's doing great stuff. I know you know Mike, he's, he's sick, he's the best, I love Slaw. 
Um, and so what's happening now is we're having this community of people and we're all able to kind of push the boulder a little bit. Yeah. And now we're making real progress. And the reason I know we're making real progress is because Dan and Taylor have a billion dollar company. Blake Hall at ID.me has a billion dollar company. Matt Kuda at Voyager Space has a billion dollar company. Those are all ones that I've invested in, but you also have Socrates Rosenfeld and some other guys and some women that are really just crushing it. And that makes me proud. And, you know, I just want to make sure that we are taking our experience and just making better entrepreneurs. It's still venture, so we're going to fail about 70% of the time. But, you know, you can fail and give your investors back a dollar for every dollar they invested. That's still a failure yeah. in terms of venture. That's right. But not such a bad failure. You know, my dad says um, you should never be afraid to take a profit because nobody loses money on a deal where they take a profit. You know, maybe it's not 100x, but, you know, you walk away with three times your money. It's pretty good, right? You'll live to fight another day. You'll live to fight another day. And I think that's the other thing that, you know, for me, because I was capital constrained personally and as I built Scout, it made me more disciplined. And the discipline, and also it slowed me down, right? I would have loved to have gotten where I am today Start five years ago. Right? Like, <laughs> you know, uh, and I made that case with USAA. And, but you know what? My relationship with USAA over time now it works. There was a change in the bank law, you know, and we have a relationship and I think that's great. And they're, I'm a customer. I have been since 91. <laughs> um, this is not a USA commercial, but you know, NAF, Steve and the whole team over there are super supportive of building great veteran companies. Um, and for us, it's not all about veterans. I think people get confused, right? Yeah. We're going to do 20%. We're going to do pure SaaS. I don't care where those come from. You know, out of our SaaS companies, most of the good ones have been started by veterans, right? Um, and that's why we kind of expanded to this kind of hard to access, which includes, you know, three-letter agency people. And so I think we are at a super exciting time. I think it's only going to get more exciting. The question is really, how do we as Scout optimize our ability to support an entrepreneur? And a lot of that for us is around trying to raise $125 million. <laughs> to be able to go get that fuel to go get some things done. Yeah, And, I mean, and it's really like if I give you a million and a half dollars and I believe in you, yeah. then I have to have another three million. Because if you do well... You're going to need more. And that yeah. second check, that's actually, in my mind, where, where you really make or break your returns. If you get that second check right, and you concentrate capital, that's the cheapest spot from your first check, right? Where you're gonna be able to do that. And you know, for us, it's provided unbelievable opportunity and returns. I oh. mean, I think our second fund, knock on wood, thanks to you know, Blake, Dan, and Taylor, you know, that fund could be due 2025X when we liquidate it. Unreal. And you know, that'll put it in the top 1%. It's small, but still, you know, I'll take it every day of the week. And now we're trying to think, okay, we did that. How do we do that again? Yeah. 
how much money do I need to deploy into how many companies based on all of my 24 years of historic data on what went well and what didn't do well. Um, and so we just keep iterating. Yeah, I love it, Brad. I think it's it's very clear to me, especially even walking through here and then talking to the people you have that you guys have a different approach and how you're looking at things. Just shifting gears now, talking, and I think it does go into just how, now talking about the operator down in the company, by talking about this operator right now I'm looking at, you talk a lot about, even in the times that we've caught up about self-care, making sure you're kind of paying attention to the things that are happening inside the mind, body, and spirit. It's the most important thing. Talk to me about that. Like, what are, so, how do you think about that? So, world? you know, I, you know, we, we all need to do a lot of work, right? <clears throat> and it's hard, you know, Benet Brown would talk about vulnerability and shame. You know, if you're a Benet Brown fan, my wife used to make us listen to that on trips and the kids would be like, turn that off. <laughs> Um, but I think when I think about it, I think about myself and I was working with a coach, you know, for me, I haven't had a drink in six years, not because of an issue with alcohol, but my body started rejecting the sugar and I get these horrible hangovers and then I'd have to suck down three espressos and eat a bacon, egg and cheese just so I felt normal. Right which was not very consistent with my fitness goals or my caffeine goals or any of that. And I was working with a coach and the coach had a very simple explanation. The value that you bring to your organization is your brain. And if your brain isn't working at your optimum level, then you're just hurting your own organization. And so if you want to keep paying me every week to have a meeting and talk about what went well and what didn't do well, like I'm happy to do that, but look at the data. And I was wearing like an early generation of a Fitbit so I could see the impact of my sleep and I could, I was training a lot so I could see when I went out, like what it did to my recovery. And so I think the first thing is really getting to a spot where you have awareness. Mm-hmm. When, you know, when are you triggered? When are you not triggered? When are you eating like shit? You know, all of these different things. And awareness takes a really long time. You know, whether you meditate or you do yoga or you play the flute, it's called a practice. And the reason it's called a practice is because you got to practice it. <laughs> it's a thing you do. It's a thing you do. Yeah. That's right. And if you don't do that, so, you know, I think it's really important to find your own space so that you can be a better partner, lover to your family, you know, that you can be a better teammate to your teammates on your startup or in our case at Scout, and that you can be a better coach, right? Because, you know, in a lot of this work and, you know, you know this from your own leadership stuff, you know, the difference between the persecutor and the victim relationship is very, very easily fixed if the persecutor starts thinking about themselves as a coach or a collaborator. Yeah. And if you start talking to that person differently and you start framing things differently, then just by reframing how you're delivering the message the result of what you get out of your organization and your people changes because now they don't feel like a victim. Yeah. Right now they feel empowered. And so I'd say, you know, this is something we're always working on 
you know, in, in venture, a lot of times, you know, it's very easy to see everybody's inner child. And a lot of times you're like, oh, I get it. This guy was an older brother. This was the oldest brother. Oh, you can you start know? to see that. This right? is a single <laughs> child. This was the middle kid. This was the baby. You know, this was the only whatever in the family. And, you know, I, I say that because at the end of the day, we are all dealing with our own inner child, right? Like, it's amazing. Uh, so in my career, I was super lucky in my, my military career, and I was fortunate enough um, to go to the Special Forces Warfare School for Civil Affairs with a little bit of psyops thrown in there, which was pretty fun. Yeah. And there's some really basic things like always ask somebody their name and introduce themselves, you know, right? Like it's amazing, right? If somebody walks up to you with their hands in prayer and they smile and they bow, do you feel threatened? No. Super simple things. Yeah. Forcing yourself to have a smile on your face when somebody comes up to the door, right? Or whatever it is. And so there's all these little things that I think if we if we spend a little bit of time being a little bit more conscious, doing a little bit more self-hygiene. And listen, I'm sure there's going to be some listeners out there that maybe I wasn't as evolved when I interacted with them. And for that, I apologize. <laughs> let's Let's make it up to you. But um, it just takes a lot of effort and awareness. And that awareness is not always so fun because you got to sit with the discomfort that is yeah, all the other stuff you're dealing with. And, uh, you know, that's a lot. And so I think trying to make sure that your entrepreneurs are spending time with their family or going on vacation or going out with their best friends or doing something. It's our job to check in on that, on that person, not, not the investment, not the CEO, that human being that you had a connection with that you bet on. How do you make them better, happier, more satisfied? Um, and you know, I don't have a formula other than, you know, try to be a good person try to give them the support they need, try to make sure they always feel like they can call me. And by the way, that's the same thing you want for your kids, right? Like my son's at boarding school now. I'm super proud of him. He's crushing it after, you know, thing is not clicking for whatever reason at another school and now he's killing it. He's calling me. He's having real conversations. He's interacting, right? That's super, super rewarding because you can see that growth. It's the same thing in your entrepreneurs, the way they report, the way they ask, you know, and, and so when it goes well, it's like, I got super jazzed up. <laughs> There's nothing better than when it goes well. Um, and it's like, it's probably addictive to be able to see that over and over again. And to your point, these are the things you think in business that, heck, even at West Point, you got taught how to be a great leader. You got taught and showed what that looked like. But when you look behind the veil, as I started to get to meet some of the most when you have folks that become just in the context of the service, but when you can insert CEO, chairman, great venture capitalist, right. whatever it might be, they're usually an incredible human being who give a lot of hoots about people. Right. I, I, I think it's the idea of service. Nobody yeah. went to West Point without an expectation of service. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, my timing, I did a couple of cool things that we don't need to talk about on the podcast, but, you know, 
I never, I missed Iraq and Afghanistan. I did. I'm just, I got out, it, like, I was at the academy during the first one in 91. I met Schwarzkopf. I watched him chug a beer. <laughs> and then by 99, I was out. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of why I am in the sector that I'm in is about a sense of service, right? Because I feel like that general that called earlier, I need to give him every technological advantage to bring home every single soldier every time he puts him in harm's way. And I can't do that on the battlefield, but I can do that by building better AI, better sensors, better drone software, you know, better things that just improve the capabilities. And then I don't want to lose to yeah. China, Russia, Syria, anybody. I just don't want to lose. And so I think that competitive spirit runs through grads. And um, when you see it in your entrepreneurs, it's pretty, oh. pretty good. Yeah, there's probably nothing better. Um, God, man, this almost hour almost blew by, okay. Brad. But I will tell you that I got one more thing on my mind. Sure. We ask every person on the show this question. Um, and it's something that I just know there's something in, in you already that I, I can imagine is going to be just <laughs> gold. But everybody's got a North Star where we learn entrepreneurs, companies. Our team, for example, Cabrera Toro is, you know, curiosity above judgment, courage above all. That's kind of our guiding light, our thing that drives us, how we make decisions left or right, how we treat people how we decide to go up or down, whatever it might be. What is the thing for you, just personally, that's been your North Star that continues to guide you and just kind of how you think about things? So, you know, I, I told you I'm doing a bunch of this personal leadership development stuff. And actually yesterday in my hour and a half session, we set the goal of kind of making sure I redefined my personal values and the corporate values of Scout. But at the highest level, when they're floating around, it's like integrity and transparency always, Yeah. right? I think it's doing the right thing when nobody's looking, which is really, really hard for some people. Um, and I think there's this idea which takes a lot of work, which is to try to approach everything with mutual respect and positive feedback, right? There's a difference between criticism and feedback. It's only a couple of words in the way you put them and it's the difference between a verb and an adjective and you, yeah. know, and you know this, yeah. right? This is what you guys teach, so I know you know this. It takes a lot of work to have the combat patience to allow a situation to develop and then proactively deliver these types of positive feedback. You know, a, a couple of years ago, I felt like the energy, I'm not really on social anymore. I'm a little bit on Instagram, but that's more to just, you know, I, I, I don't know that it's so safe to be on social. I'm not, I don't use TikTok for, you know, a lot of reasons. Yeah. Although people keep sending me TikTok videos that I don't open. Uh, but I really think, you know, the guiding star of doing the right thing, integrity beyond reproach, and making the world a better, safer place, like that's a pretty simple game plan. The, the positive approach to it is that, you know, 
I can sometimes, in the old version of me, just complain or be grumpy or, you know, whatever you want to call it, emotionally dysregulated as a response to a situation. But a long time ago, I realized that your reaction to this situation is something you fully control. So you can have a bad situation and try to find the positive and try to frame things in the positive with constructive feedback as opposed to say, oh my God, we're totally screwed, right? So it's that idea of that positive feedback as a mechanism to support the integrity and the teamwork I think that's really what I'm trying to work on, you know, and we talked about it earlier, you know, giving feedback to Zeke or somebody, you know, being a little bit more thoughtful with your words, you know, I, it never occurred to me that like maybe calling somebody at 730 on a Saturday night was like, maybe. you know, but like it, it never occurred to me because in the army, you don't think about time, right? It's like, oh, it's what needs to this. get done. Yeah. Like, oh, hey, man, I just thought of this. Like, I just, and so I think building a container to, to, of mutual respect where you understand the human and the, their life and trying to just be a great leader by providing all of these other things that you need to provide, but with mutual respect and understanding for like them and then over time, understanding how these people you're giving feedback take feedback the best. Some people take it in written format. They don't want the, they don't want the interaction. Some people want the interaction and then they want to write a report after, whatever it is. I think you as a leader and as an investor, you have like your game plan, but you got to be malleable to customize that to each one. You know, we have our own perspectives. We all have our own perspectives, good or bad. Um, and so, you know, trying to relate with that perspective is a way to more effectively deliver a message. Um, and then I think the other thing is, and this goes back to the military, you know, my platoon sergeant, Sergeant Ralph Kluna, who was an amazing coach and leader for me, you know, he used to make this very simple comment, like, do you want them to respect the man that's leading them? Or do you want them to respect the rank and the position? And that becomes a really simple question. As soon as you command anybody, you're like, oh, you want them to respect me. Yeah. Right. And that means I'm going to go show up at the motor pool which I don't recommend anybody go to the motor pool, but I, I got stuck with a motor pool once. Um, but you go to the motor pool and you just show your face. You know, you go to the mess hall and you eat after your soldiers, right? Um, I know Wes Blackwell, if he's listening, is like, well, every time we go out to a business dinner, Brad eats first. But that... I would blame that on intermittent fasting. I just haven't eaten all day. I'm starving, brother. I'm starving, right? Like I skipped lunch. I had, I had two carrots today. Um, but no, I mean, I think it's these little things. So if you take all of these things, you add a layer of awareness and you're constantly making sure you iterate on your own professional development, right? Like it's hard. Yeah. 
right? It's hard to carve out a, an hour and a half every week to do professional development. It's expensive because the coach is really great. And then there's a process and you got to do the work. So I think, you know, I know we're coming up on a wrap. I think for us, it's how do we take our experiences of what worked at a process of how we interact with our CEOs and how we share information and how we support them to make them better. And ultimately we want them to say, you know what? We got no complaints with Scout. They've been a great investor. They've helped us where we've needed help. And you know, they're pretty fun people to hang out with too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I could not have thought or articulated that in a way, not only from using our time in the service, but being able to put that here in the real life or what I would say the private sector life and whatnot, Brad. Thank you so much for your time yeah, today. Dude, this anytime. is absolutely killer. We'll have to do this in a couple of years, you know, and you'll be like, okay, where are we now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you How, know, and, and will I still have the same flute? This is what I'm wondering. I, I feel like an upgraded I'll, flute. I'll come back in here and I'll probably see what are the no, things no, called, no, like no, a didgeridoo? No. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. It'll be the same flute, maybe a different key. I love it, man. Thank you, Brad, right, for your hey, time, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. All right, brother. Much love. Professionally Offensive Podcast. You can catch us on all platforms. JC out.